first settled in the valleys of the Nile and Tigris-Euphrates to grow grains rather than search for food, two things resulted. Civilization and beer brewing. This was clearly no accident, according to our guest today, who has devoted a lifetime to studying the science of brewing. Professor Charles W. Bamforth has been called the world's most knowledgeable beer researcher. Through a diverse career, including 11 years in academia, eight at a brewing company, and 13 years of research, he has penned no less than nine books on the subject. Currently, he is UC Davis's first Anheuser-Busch Endowed Professor of Malting and Brewing Sciences. His efforts to improve beer production and his speaking out on this subject have earned him good press in two of our favorite magazines, New Scientist and The Economist. Last October, Playboy named him one of the top 20 professors who are reinventing the classroom. His latest book is titled, Beer is Proof God Loves Us. We join him to discuss his book and beer by journeying to UCD's Robert Mondavi Institute for Wine and Food Science, where new state-of-the-art laboratory facilities provide students with the latest tools in the science of brewing. We're pleased to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Charles Bamforth. Hello, how are you? We're fine. I'd like to start maybe with some ancient history. Uh, Brewing beer goes way back. Uh, But I understand in its original forms, it was fairly different than the product we think of as beer today. Well, thousands of years ago, so we've no idea how it really tasted, but uh, it wouldn't have tasted much like it does today. Um, It was uh, basically accidentally produced, and it had been extremely grainy and uh, great lumps of uh, insoluble material that will stick between your teeth and so on. But uh, it had the desired effect. When they drank it, they got kind of warm and cozy. And, uh, and so they just uh, proceeded to improve it. But it is the basis of civilization. <laughs> and we should note that for most of our history, beer uh, was a much safer drink than plain water. Absolutely, uh, much safer. And, uh, you know, because when you're making beer, you have to boil um, the extract of the grain. And, of course, when you boil, uh, you kill off the bugs. And then when you ferment, of course, you produce alcohol, and that also is antimicrobial. And then in relatively recent times, the last few hundred years, people have been putting hops happily into beer, and the hops themselves are antimicrobial. So beer's got a lot going for it in uh, uh, not supporting the growth of pathogenic organisms. Well, in the past, I gather from reading that some people looked kind of askance at beer making as an academic pursuit, but looking at this wonderful facility, it looks like you've certainly overcome all that. Oh, absolutely. We, we really have a beautiful facility here. And you've got to remember that so much that's uh, day-to-day in, uh, in life generally uh, originated in the brewing industry. So if you go back to the days of Carlsberg, they uh, did very fundamental research to deliver concepts like pH. Everybody's heard of pH and acidity and so on. Well, that is a concept came out of the brewing industry. Really? And we're, we're continuing this, uh, uh, this adventure. And uh, with this beautiful facility we have here, we are uh, continuing to uh, explore the, uh, the nuances of converting uh, grain and hops and water into uh, this nectar. Well, as an undergraduate here at UC Davis back in the Pliocene era, I, I would say that, uh, that uh, certainly Davis has all been noted for its viticulture and enology, but a startling stat in researching for this, uh, this talk, uh, beer generates 10 times the sales receipts of, uh, of wine in America. 
Well, it is the world's most popular beverage, and it is, uh, despite what people think, it's the most sophisticated beverage. <laughs> it's, uh, it's certainly the toughest to make, and, uh, and there's a lot more science involved in making beer. Now, I'm kind of prejudiced, but uh, in fairness, that's a very accurate statement. So, uh, yeah, we've been training brewers here at uh, UC Davis actually since the very late 50s. And over there uh, in this room, you, there's the, uh, the, the old brewery, uh, which was put here in 1958 uh, by the, uh, the chief technical officer of the Lucky Lager Brewing Company. And uh, at the time, there's also a letter in there pointing out to Emil Mrak, who at the time was the chair of the food science department, just how much money somebody could earn in the brewing industry. And it was a healthy sum of money back in the late 50s. And uh, it's still possible to make a nice uh, living in the brewing industry if you play your cards right. Well, as we speak, we're in a laboratory that is, in effect, a mini-brewery here. Uh, could we sort of walk through maybe some of the steps that go into making beer? You know, your last chapter in the book, I think, uh, kind of outlines for people the basic flow of all that. Yeah. Uh, actually, I've uh, written lots of other books, and they're much more uh, detailed on, on the, on the uh, beer and brewing itself. This book's more uh, philosophical and, uh, uh, and a look at beer as part of the quality of life. But... Yeah, we can. We, let's start over here, and uh, you know, behind that door, we won't go through there. There's a mill, so we grind up the grain, and then the uh, the milled grain is mixed in these tanks with hot water, and in those tanks, the mashing vessels, the starch in the grain is broken down by the enzymes to produce sugars, and then in this vessel here, it's allowed to turn. We separate the wort, the liquid from the residual spent grains. The spent grains go off to composting. On a big scale, in big breweries, they go off to cattle feed. Mm -hmm. And then this liquid is uh, uh, pumped over into this vessel, which is called a brew kettle. This is where it's boiled with hops, and we're extracting the, uh, the bitterness from the hops and extracting the aroma from the hops. And it's, this is where, of course, the sterilization takes place. And a lot of vapor comes off. You can see how it's vented throughout mm -hmm. to the uh, ceiling. Beautiful aromas coming off there. And then we have this whirlpool, which was a principle first observed by Albert Einstein of how to separate solids from liquids. It was actually the tea leaves in his tea that he was studying, but we take advantage of it for clarifying the liquid here. And it's cooled to these things that look very much like uh, car radiators. It's cooled down to fermentation temperature. And we add the yeast and then over to one of these fermenters here. We've got so, six fermenters yeah, If I can stop here. for a second. There's yeah. six different stainless steel tanks here. Yeah. We're starting out with basically, uh, I guess, sprouted barley. Well, yeah. it's, it's more than sprouted. It's actually dried. And okay. you dry the malt uh, mm -hmm. uh, to different degrees, uh, depending on how much color you want and how much flavor you want. And so that is what the starting point here, and, and those vessels right at the end, that's where we do the extraction. So a bank of six tanks, and then what's coming out of this is what you need to add the yeast into then. Absolutely right. And the, here are six fermenters. Uh, when the yeast ferments, the, uh, the sugary liquid we've produced here uh, is metabolizing, so it produces heat. Each of these vessels is uh, jacketed, so it's cooled. Uh, to control the temperature, so we control the speed at which the fermentation happens. So in these vessels, this is where the sugar is converted into alcohol and carbon dioxide. Of course, the alcohol gives us that happy feeling, and the carbon dioxide puts the bubbles there. Uh, and so the beer is fermented here, and it's matured here, and the flavor is matured, and then, of course, we can do our experiments on it. So all these tanks are basically identical, or are they in, are they in series? Is this They're all uh, identical, so what we can do is do different experiments. So, for example, huh. we could say, here's six 
different uh, vessels, we could put six different yeasts in here to see what the impact is, or six different something else, or we can adjust the temperature and have them at different temperatures. And so we can do experiments. But of course, one of the main uh, purposes of this uh, uh, brewery is to teach tomorrow's brewers. And so uh, we have a, uh, a class, a, a practical brewing class, where the students learn how to brew beer. And they design their own beers. Uh, and we have a competition to see who brews the best beer. Uh, so it's great fun as being enormously educational. And I'm, I'm gathering many of your graduates have gone out to various uh, breweries all over the world. Absolutely. Um, historically, uh, the company that has taken the most people from uh, this program uh, has always been Anheuser-Busch. But brewers have gone to many other companies, and many of the brewers in the uh, burgeoning craft uh, brewing industry, many of them come to Davis to learn to brew, either here on the campus or in the extension program. We have an extension program uh, that uh, is headed up by the Emeritus Professor Michael Lewis, and I'm heavily involved in it as well as, well as several others. And there we are churning brewers out every year. It's a complete sellout every year. And many of those want to go into the craft sector. And some of them want to start their own breweries, and uh, there's a long history of that as well. And I'm gathering you have quite a good relationship with the folks of the uh, of Sierra Nevada Brewing in Chico and Gordon Biersch in San Jose, etc. Absolutely. I, um, I teach three brewing classes here on campus, and one of them is a, a general education class. Uh, third most popular class on campus after the class on uh, nutrition and the class on sex and sexuality. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but the beer is right up there in the, in the popularity stakes. And in that class, where we introduce people very responsibly to the history and the uh, the science of brewing and different types of beer and so on. But I do uh, invite people to come and talk about their careers. And so we have the guys from Anna's Bush, but we also have Ken Grossman who tells the amazing story of how he grew the Sierra Nevada company. But we have Dan Gordon uh, from Gordon Biersch, uh, who uh, brews uh, in a very traditional German way. Uh, but also he tells them how to make the perfect garlic fry. Because Dan Gordon is the guy who invented the garlic fry. Isn't he the guy with that phrase of, like, never trust a, a thin brewer? Or something uh, never trust a skinny brewer. Um, and, and, and Dan's a big guy. Um, not quite as big as he was, but uh, he lives up to uh, he, and he, a tremendously infectious uh, sense of humor. Fritz Maytag will be up here in a couple of weeks talking about his, uh, the way in which he really did as much as anybody to, to energize the craft sector with the Anchor Brewing Company before he sold it just a, a year ago. And then lots of other people as well. So w w we're very blessed to have uh, great relationships with companies large and small. Uh, so I guess anyone here in this laboratory has the, uh, has the ability to drink absolutely fresh beer. And I was surprised to learn from your book that it really is best fresh. Absolutely. And that that choice between tap can and bottle is maybe tougher than people think. <laughs> Uh, the, the, uh, the, the reality is the best uh, beer is usually the stuff that's nearest to the brewery. And so beer doesn't travel all that well usually. Uh, it's prone to deterioration and it stales. And uh, the, the, the freshest beer is likely to be in a can as opposed to a bottle. Uh, the problem being in a bottle that air can creep in between the, uh, the crown cork, the, the cap, and the neck of the bottle and make the beer grow progressively uh, more oxidized and cardboard-like. It takes time, and the, the best way to uh, slow it down, slow down that deterioration, is to keep the beer cold. Uh, never freeze it, just keep it cold. As regards beer uh, on tap, you know, I was asked some while ago, you know, you go into a bar, 50 beers on tap, which one do you choose? I said one in a bottle or in a can. <laughs> because, you know, if you go into a place where they've got 50 beers on tap, they're not all moving through those lines as fast as they should, should be. 
So uh, if you're going to go to such a place, uh, go when uh, something's just been newly tapped, or as I do, say uh, which of these the, uh, which of these beers uh, do you sell the most of? Uh, because you know that that beer is moving through the line more quickly than uh, than others. So the the basic belief that beer on tap is necessarily better is as often as not um, quite the opposite. Well, you're, you're an authority on the healthfulness of beer. Brewers, I think, once tried to call it liquid bread, and I guess it may fall a bit short of that, but certainly it has got a lot of good things in it. It has. It's, uh, I, I like to tease my friends in the, uh, the wine uh, department here that uh, they've <laughs> stolen the moral high ground, and of course they have, uh, because beer actually is a lot healthier for you than wine. Um, you know, the, the, the key ingredient, of course, is the alcohol. And uh, joking apart, if you drink alcohol in moderation... Uh, it cuts down the risk of your, your uh, blood vessels from blocking by cutting down the risk of uh, uh, atherosclerosis, it's called. And the key ingredient is actually the alcohol. And so the alcohol in beer is just as effective as that in wine. But with beer, of course, you've got uh, nutritive value as well. Uh, it's the single richest source of silica in the diet, and that's good for your bones. It's got some B vitamins in, in there. It's got some soluble fiber. Yeah, fiber really surprised me. Oh, that. yeah. Oh, yeah. It comes originally from the grain, and uh, it's, uh, it's not huge amounts. You know, it's not going to be as much as you get in a bowl of uh, bran. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, it's uh, a lot more uh, enjoyable, uh, in my humble opinion, than a bowl uh, of bran. <laughs> so the, it, it does make a contribution. There's this myth that it's, it's all about empty calories. That's not true. Beer is not empty calories. And the major source of calories in beer, just like any other uh, alcoholic beverage, is actually the alcohol. There was a study recently that, you know, that everyone knows that you hear this thing, you drink a couple drinks a, a night. People think of that it was wine, but certainly they could substitute beer and, and do as well or better, perhaps. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, alcohol in any form. You know, the thing is not to abuse it, um, but, you know, the equivalent of a couple of 12-ounce bottles of beer every day. Uh, try not to miss. And don't uh, store them up for the weekend. You know, you can't uh, have them all on a Saturday night. That's binge drinking. <laughs> That's not a good idea either. But, uh, but joking apart, you know, as long as it's treated like anything else with respect and in balance, you know, it can be a, a very worthy component of a, a very holistic lifestyle. And I was hoping at some point we could address, I know this is a topic probably you could do a whole hour on, but the differences between beers, ales, lagers, stouts, porters, and such. Is there a thumbnail summary you can have for that? It's pretty complicated, but we can divide beers uh, broadly into ales and, and lagers. Um, ales, historically made with um, a yeast that rises to the top of the fermenter, called a top fermenting yeast, and working at somewhat higher temperatures, so it kind of belts out the fruity flavors and so on. And also... Uh, the hops, uh, traditionally, uh, some hops added right at the end of the process uh, to introduce a, uh, quite a complex hoppy aroma. Um, lagers, uh, the word lager means to store. Uh, yeast, uh, the yeast sinks to the bottom of the fermenter, fermentation at lower temperatures, and then this long storage period, this lagering. Uh, and also hops here, a proportion of them added right at the end of the boiling stage to get what is called a late hop character, gives a very refined character. But within these genres, there are many different types. So if you look at the ales, then porters and stouts are made with a lot of roasted grain to get that darker, uh, um, intense character, more of the coffee burnt characters that you get in those types of products. Hefeweizens, those are ales. The, the hefer yeast, the special yeast, um, is an ale strain. And that's a very special yeast that belts out lots of uh, aroma of banana, some people call it bubblegum, and cloves. So, um, mm -hmm. so a, a hefeweizen should smell of cloves as well. 
And of course, none of that lemon sticking in the top. That's a foreign body. Just toss that away. <laughs> that, that doesn't belong there. But, uh, but uh, you know, so that, those are ales as well. So, you know, you can have black lagers. You can have uh, beers with uh, smoky flavors. Uh, you can have chocolate stouts. Uh, you can have uh, very popular uh, uh, in Mexico, michelada, you know, with, uh, with lager, with tomato juice, lime, um, Tabasco or Worcestershire sauce, you know, uh, the list goes on. Um, some people say to me, you know, I don't like beer. I say, that's nonsense. You might as well say, I don't like food because there's a beer for you. You just got to go find it. You know, there's beers with fruit in them. There's beers made with, uh, with uh, interesting different organisms. Uh, um, uh, there's a little brewery, uh, not so little these days, a brewery not too far from here called Russian River. Wonderful uh, guy, Vinny Silerzo, makes some excellent beers, but he calls them himself, his funky beers. Uh, they've got in them things like Bretonomyces, which, you know, um, is claimed by the wine industry to give sort of wet horse blanket flavor. <laughs> But you know, doesn't seem like a plus. No, but <laughs> but um, I'm not sure if I should say this. But Vinny delights when he one of his beers is described as like a, a wet dog urinating in a telephone box. Um, Yum. Because yeah, but but you see, it's it's a point of difference. Uh, and those beers actually, they're, they're very interesting. They're very interesting, and and some people find them a challenge. But you know, it all adds to this rich spectrum of of, of beers that are available. And again, teasing my, my buddies in viticulture enology, you know, I say, what have you got there? Red, white, and pink. <laughs> and occasionally a few bubbles. But with beer, we've got everything. And, and I, I have to ask this. I'm very confused. What, what, what goes into what we call malt liquors of various different uh, descriptions? Well, malt liquors, of course, is a, a United States triumph. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, basically, they are um, beers that... Um, a uh, significant level of alcohol, and uh, they're made with, with... But they don't taste like beer. Well, they do, but they're, they're fairly gently flavored. They've got, um, uh, they got malt in them, obviously, but they also they got quite a lot of uh, adjunct uh, uh, sugar, as we would call it. And therefore, they're, they've got a, a fairly alcoholic kick. And nobody would ever position them as, as the most sophisticated of brews, but uh, there's a market for them. Well, America's got its malt liquors. Every nation seems to have its own national brews. Uh, I can think of some pretty weak examples I had in Africa and maybe in the old Soviet bloc. <laughs> but a lot of nations are creating some pretty fine beers. I think of like Singha in Thailand and I think a lot of others. Singer is one of my favorites. And now Singer is a, is a beer. It's a, a brewed according to very traditional Germanic approaches. And it's got a, the, the late hop character I was describing, the refined hop character. It's, it's really very special in there with a, a Czech hop called uh, Sartz. Um, and so I just, uh, you're making me ready for a tight time meal right now. But, uh, you know, there, there, there's no finer accompaniment to, to, to that, that uh, type of food as well. But, of course, when you talk about beer, it's a far better match for, for food than, than wine is. You know, my colleague Moshe Rosenberg is a cheese expert. He and I every year put on a, a beer and a cheese pairing. Mm -hmm. and, and some of the matches are made in heaven. In fact, he, he calls the cheese uh, the bride and, of course, the beer is the groom. And some of these pairings are just, you know, sensational and will, will go on forever. And um, so, so uh, you know, think of Asian food and it's a great match for beer. Think of... Um, Mexican food. I always say, sure. think of, you know, I'm English. Think of great British food, otherwise known as Indian food. Uh, <laughs> goes far better with, uh, with beer than, than anything else. Well, you know, behind you here, you have all these, these various tanks. You mentioned different times of yeast you might blend. Is this kind of a jealously guarded secret, perhaps one brewer's yeast versus another? 
yeast, uh, there are many yeasts, uh, uh, and uh, brewers are very uh, uh, choosy about their yeast, and they believe in their own yeast strains and so on. The reality is that uh, the yeast becomes more and more important the, the gentler the flavor of the product. So if you've got a, a beer which has got a really strong roast, harsh character and lots of hops in it, you know, you, you, the yeast, you're not going to detect the subtleties of yeast metabolism. But if you've got a fairly gently flavored product, the yeast uh, is, is much more important. By the way, you know, um, some people are very, very... Um, snooty and very, very critical of, of uh, the, the North American lager genre. And that's not really fair because those are great beers. They, they don't have huge amounts of flavor. And actually, um, they're very hard to make because you can't hide any mistakes in them. Yeah. They're very refreshing. Um, and, and so um, just because they don't have huge amounts of flavor does not make them bad beers. Uh, they're pre prepared and produced with a lot of care and devotion and they're very, very consistent. And, you know, they, they sell well because lots of people like them. So, uh, you know, different people like different things. Some people are hop heads and they like loads of hops. That's fine. Uh, but those people who like the gently flavored beers, uh, let them get on with it and enjoy it. Well, I want to clear up a couple of things. Uh, maybe an old myth we used to hear that if you drink beer after liquor, you know, makes nothing makes you sicker. The other way around is fine. And I guess that that's just one big myth. Yeah, well, I haven't explored that. Of course, <laughs> I, 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 I drink in moderation anyway. But I don't. I mean, I wouldn't advocate chopping and changing anyway. And and in in all seriousness, I I do advocate uh, drinking in moderation for pleasure. You know, I. I deplore more than anybody, I think, uh, people sort of using beer as, a, as just a, a, as an end in its own right, you know, right. drinking games and all this stupidity and, you know, beer pong. I've never heard of Chardonnay pong, but, <laughs> but uh, so I, I, I like to think of beer as part of a holistic lifestyle where you enjoy it as part of a meal or a conversation and so on. And in the book, I, I, I talk a lot about, you know, examples of that. And people like, you know, C.S. Lewis and uh, people like that, enjoying their beer and discussing their writing and so on and so forth. And uh, just the, 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 the beer as a, an accompaniment to a, a, a quality of life and uh, rather than being just a, an exercise in, in, in getting drunk, which is kind of stupid. Well, Dr. Bamford, it's been, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Before we, we end the topic today, I do note in the book that there's some, like what you described as neo-prohibitionistic forces trying to fight to alcoholic beverages. I know that Ken Burns has a special coming in the fall on our Great American Experiment with Prohibition, and Daniel Okrent's written a fine book on that as well. I just want to get a few words from you on, on that, uh, that great, what I guess was regarded with as total insanity in Great Britain. Well, yeah. I mean, it, there were pressures in the UK as well, and uh, there were f uh, pressures in the, the war years uh, to uh, divert uh, barley production to uh, gr uh, chickens and eggs rather than beer. And they did a calculation, and I don't know, it'd be about one egg a month uh, <laughs> in the general population and a lot of misery. Um, so uh, the beer was weaker and so on uh, than uh, in peacetime, but uh, nonetheless... Uh, the impact on morale was, was considerable. You know, it, it was, uh, I don't know, it's been described as an experiment, prohibition, uh, noble in purpose, but, uh, you know, um, who knows? Um, but it was, uh, it had a major impact on the economy. And, and, and frankly, 
if you deny somebody something, if you, if you tell somebody it's a, a, a wicked thing to do, then they're going to go and hide away and do it behind closed doors anyway. And, uh, you know, there was things like a 500% increase in drunk driving in Chicago uh, during <laughs> Prohibition, you know, because um, people were, were hiding it away and doing, uh, drinking some fairly dubious liquids and, and frankly, behaving badly. Uh, and so it, it, it was just a failed experiment, but um, hopefully it'll never arise again. But there are... You know, there are people who have some fairly extreme views mm -hmm. um, on alcohol, including beer. And uh, my stance is, is the middle way. You know, it's, it's one of, of, of tolerance and, and mindfulness. And, and uh, to a large extent, that's what this book is about. Well, the book is Beer is Proof, God Loves Us. We've been speaking with uh, its author, Charles W. Bamford from UC Davis. And uh, Dr. Bamford, those who want to learn more, your website has a lot of data. Where can listeners go to, uh, to learn more? Well, if you just put my name, Bamforth, B-A-M-F-O-R-T-H, into the web, Bamforth and Beer into the web, you'll come straight, <laughs> straight to me and straight to the website. Well, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you. I hope we can have you on again, perhaps when, in the fall when they talk about prohibition. I'm sure you'll have uh, more to say then. Um, I will be delighted to talk to you again. Thank you. There's a tear in my beer cold. I'm crying for you, dear. You are on my lonely mind. Into these last nine beers I have shed a million tears You are on my lonely mind I'm gonna keep drinking Until I'm petrified And then maybe These tears will leave my eyes There's a tear in my beer Cause I'm crying for you, dear I'm alone.